Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Joining us now is Dr. Megan Ribbons. Megan, welcome to Power Hour. Thanks for having me, Alex. All right, so the, the reason I'm bringing you on today is because I've wanted for a while to have a show about oil, and particularly about the, the science of oil, the chemistry of oil, actually understanding how it works. Because we, you know, we talk about oil, most people have some idea what it looks like. And we know from the show that it's used for this as this incredibly dense source of energy. And then it's also synthesized into all of these uh, petroleum products, and yet most people, unless you've, you've really studied the issue a lot, unless you're a professional scientist who's, who's studied this material, have no idea how that happens. We know it involves human ingenuity, but we don't know how necessarily. I mean, I, I know a bit, but I study it for a living. Um, and you and I have talked about it, and you've taught me quite a bit about it, so I thought we'd bring you here to teach the audience. How does that sound? It sounds wonderful. <laughs> Always, Megan, is, as you will see, is very enthusiastic uh, about science, which is, is uh, always always a pleasure. All right, so let's just I'm say... not to be. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know, from what... You hear all these complaints about, oh, there aren't enough women in science and technology, so apparently uh, it is hard to get people interested in science. Well, that's actually a good question. Why don't we just talk about that for a second? Why, why do you think it's so hard for people to get interested in science and technology, and then within that... Uh, women? Um, I have a hard time answering that question because, I, you know, really I can only speak for myself and I'm obviously very interested in science and technology. Um, and the truth is in, in my, you know, um, you know, my sort of limited purview, about half the, half the people in my department were women and, and very well-rounded people in general. I know there's sort of this stereotype when it comes to um, scientists and it really be further from the truth if you were to sort of look at the demographics of the people I worked with. Um, I mean, I will say that um, scientists don't always make the best storytellers, which is really too bad because there are so many instances of, of scientific phenomena that really are amazing stories. And the truth is that fossil fuels is one of the most amazing stories and plastics too. Um, but again, not, not everyone who uh, is good at investigating is, is also good at telling a, turning a good yarn, if you will. Does that answer your question? Well, actually, it's a, it's a perfect segue to the fascinating story of fossil fuels. So you have the opportunity to rectify the ineptitude at storytelling of the scientific profession. And tell us, the, where do you start in the story of fossil fuels? Um, well, I, I should probably say a little bit about my background. So I, I got my bachelor's degree in biochemistry and then my PhD in molecular biology. Um, so, so what I was trained to do was really look at life at its most fundamental elements, you know, the, the chemistry of it um, and how that sort of, you know, synergistically brought us these amazing creatures that we are. Um, it, it helps. It's very helpful in that respect to understand, um, you know, where oil comes from and, and what it looks like. And you know, through biochemists, I see like how um, how powerful these molecules are. So um, here's an example. Um, so we talk about you know. So so I, my dissertation research was on microbial fuel cells or bacterial batteries. And, and what became very clear to me early on was that everything living is a battery in the sense that um, to live, we need to take things that have a high potential energy and convert it into something with a low potential energy. And on the way, we use, you know, sort of the in-between to power everything we do. And does that give you kind of a good start? 
Well, that is a good start, but then um, explain that because most people aren't, uh, you know, even familiar with those basic physics or have forgotten them. So, what what exactly is a battery, and what what happens with the high potential energy and the low potential energy? Um, well, so that's a good question. So, um, so my my context is is chemical batteries um, and biological batteries, and and in both cases. Um, you start with, mo- I mean, not all molecules are created equal. It's probably self-evident. Um, some have a lot of energy sort of packed in them. And, you know, if, if you ever want to look at, you know, the sort of chemical formulation um, and kind of take a guess at how much energy it has, it's helpful to keep the following in mind. Um, anything with carbons and hydrogens in it, and indeed, the more you have, the more energy there tends to be. CH bonds and CC bonds tend to have huge amounts of energy packed into them. Now, um, in order to sort of harness that energy, you need to do um, redox reactions. And, and I know that somewhere in your audience, at least one person's eyes are glazing over. Um, to be fair, everyone I've ever taught um, has trouble with redox reactions. The point, really is that you, you break these high-energy bonds and replace them with low-energy bonds. One of the easiest ways to do that is with oxygen. So if you break um, a bond between carbon and hydrogen and replace them with oxygen, so you'd be making water and carbon dioxide, for example, um, you're, <laughs> you've, you've gone from high-energy bonds to low-energy bonds. Now, you know, the, the first law of thermodynamics is that matter and energy are neither, you know, created or destroyed, they're just converted. So if you're going from high energy bonds to low energy bonds, there's there's some energy missing there, right? And it's usually kicked off in the form of heat, which we then harness, and electricity, which we then harness um, to live or power stuff. Okay, so just, just to make sure I understand and, and the audience understand, you have these we can go into them in a little bit, but hydrocarbons, so CH bonds or carbon, hydrogen, carbon, carbon, the idea is those are unusually uh, strong. And then by introducing oxygen into the system, usually I think it's through burning, um, you are able to uh, to break those bonds and replace them with oxygen bonds. And in the process, because the oxygen bonds uh, require lower energy, you have you have extra energy, which is then released in the form of heat. Yeah, perfect. Now, the nice thing about what, you know, makes batteries and, and living things kind of special is that, you know, it's, it's, it sort of breaks the, the whole burning process into two steps. One is where you, you know, you're breaking these bonds and then you move the electrons and the protons um, through the battery, you know, through a circuit, um, and they meet up on the other side to form these lower energy bonds, um, whereas when you, when you burn them, those, those electrons move pretty instantaneously, and what you're really capitalizing on is all the heat produced. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, that's really interesting, and I, had, I hadn't thought of, of batteries, because I, I know a lot more about just the chemistry of combustion than I do uh, about batteries. So can you explain what, uh, a little bit more on the, on the two stages, the idea that there um, are two stages? Yeah, I mean, I... It's easier for me to, to speak in terms of um, the batteries I researched, which had bacteria sort of catalyzing this reaction. But, um, you know, essentially what they would do is they would take the high-energy bonds in their sugar that they ate um, and break them down. And, um, you know, they, so they, they sort of rip the electrons off of these, these sugars and pass them down this sort of cool chemical chain to make ATP, now that the electrons, you know, so its energy has been utilized, it's, it's this lower energy electron. It's, you know, you got to get rid of it, right? Otherwise, you'd be this statically supercharged organism, and it would be a mess. Um, the way they do that, and the way we do that, is we breathe. We dump these these low energy electrons that we've used up um, onto oxygen. Except, you know, my bacteria is pretty special in that they need not use oxygen to breathe, to get rid of these electrons, they can use, um, among other things, solid rock, like rust. So they, they literally dump their electrons onto the, um, the anode of the, the, the one half of the, um, 
uh, battery, and um, then the, the electrons flow, because they're still relatively high energy, they, they flow through, you know, from the cathode through a resistor like a light bulb, if that's what you want to turn on, um, or excuse me, the anode to the cathode, um, where they then meet up with oxygen and go on their merry way. That was a really lengthy explanation, but was it sort of coherent? Yeah, yeah, I think, I mean, even, even if uh, everyone didn't follow every little detail, there, there's some definitely stuff to hold on to. I think the idea of just breathing, like what, what breathing is in relation to electrons is, uh, is fascinating. So let's, let's uh, zoom out a little bit. You mentioned that, um, you know, carbon-hydrogen bonds are very strong, and, and I guess we should say just explicitly, these are the central sorts of bonds involved in hydrocarbons, or uh, as we often call them, uh, fossil fuels. Just to give us a contrast, what are bonds that exist that are lower energy bonds that, you know, are in other things that we're familiar with that aren't fossil fuels? Pretty much everything. I mean, pretty much everything else. Um, there's, um, you know, if, if, if the audience will remember their chemistry, there's different kinds of bonds, right? There's covalent bonds, which are the strongest, and, and that's what we're talking about between carbon and hydrogen and carbon and carbon and carbon and oxygen. And even there, there's... Um, you know, definite differences um, between, you know, atoms that covalently bond. And then there's other kinds of bonds that, you know, are nowhere near on the order, to, order of magnitude. Um, but, you know, again, it's, it's helpful anytime you, you see a molecular structure or a molecule and your eyes are starting to swim, it, it's helpful if you look for anything, particularly with oxygen. You know, that every single oxygen in there, if it were replaced by a couple of hydrogens or some carbon, um, it would be at a lot higher energy. It's, it's helpful to think of anything that's got some oxygen in it, particularly a biological molecule, is partially burnt. So if you, you know, if you ever try, try, ugh, if you ever try to start a fire with ash, you know, there's not much energy there because it's all sort of been burnt up. Um, so anything with oxygen is kind of kind of ashy, if you like. So if someone's looking at, at a diagram of a molecule, basically, and they see carbon and hydrogen and then oxygen, they should see oxygen as not the strong part of the energy component. Yeah, so it, and, and indeed, we, we refer to that molecule as partially oxidized, which you can sort of think is partially burnt. Okay. Have you ever, uh, we've never talked about this, but I'm just curious, have you ever thought of like describing these uh, atoms and then the molecules in terms of, of personalities? Because I almost think of <laughs> oxygen as promiscuous because it can just, you know, you have these bonds and then oxygen comes in and everything bonds with it. It's like it breaks up all these relationships. <laughs> kind of, actually, when I, when I teach my students, I, I talk about oxygen being a big bully. Because, um, you know, carbon and hydrogen and, and carbon and carbon, they share electrons pretty much evenly. They're, they're such excellent sharers. And then you get oxygen there. And, you know, while the, the electrons, you know, between an oxygen and a carbon atom will they'll, they'll circle around all the entire molecule, but they'll spend most of their time with this cult of personality oxygen. So it's a, it's, um, a big electron hog is how I like to describe it. But what you said, you know, makes a lot of sense, too. Um, so, let's see. Oh, I got distracted by my own, um, <laughs> by my own search for, uh, for atom metaphors. So, let's, so we've got then, so let, let's, I want to talk about the origin of fossil fuels, people are curious about. But since, since we're just on the level of what, what, you know, what happens if we look at them in terms of their, their basic uh, chemistry, um, what are the, with these carbon and hydrogen bonds, what are the, the relative differences between coal, oil, and natural gas? That's an excellent question. So um, the easiest one to answer is natural gas, which your audience probably knows is methane, right? Um, we have a way of, of naming any sort of um, organic molecule. And methane is just one carbon surrounded by um, four hydrogens. So you might imagine each little, I mean, it's a very tiny molecule, but each little molecule um, has a lot of energy, relatively speaking. Um, 
Well, we get to coal, it's mostly a bunch of carbons, and they form these rings. Carbon wants to form these these six-member rings, and they, they form... There's, there's lots of pictures online. They, they form these really elaborate carbon structures. Um, part of the problem there is that, I mean, the coal is pretty energy dense, but, you know, if you, there's this great Wikipedia article that sort of lists a bunch of different substances in their energy density. And you'll see that, that coal is not on the level of gasoline, for example. And part of that has to do with the fact that um, those rings, you know, because carbon is such a great share, right? They share electrons so well, they don't need quite as many as they would otherwise. Um, and because you, you have fewer electrons and, you know, fewer hydrogens, if, if you look carefully, um, there's less there to burn, right? Um, there's just fewer of those, um, you know, energy-rich bonds to, to really capitalize when you burn it. You know, so it sort of explains why coal is not as energy-dense, but it is quite energy done. Um, and then you have gasoline, for example, which um, I'm sure your listeners know is, is a mixture of just chains of car carbon and hydrogen. You know, it's got one carbon attached to another in, in this sort of linear fashion, and then hydrogen coming off of the backbone. Um, and those, they, they, they're energy dense not just because um, you know, they've caught all these energy-rich bonds because they pack really nicely together. Um, you know, it's sort of like laying sticks or like straws flat against each other. You know, they pack really nicely, which, you know, helps to explain their, their energy density. And does that, does that give you a good picture? Yeah, yeah, and I want to dive a little bit uh, deeper into it. And maybe one way to do that is just, so we, it's interesting that we have this, um, it's interesting that the one in the middle is the most energy dense. So you've got this solid, which is coal, and then you've got this, mm -hmm. um, you know, liquid, which is the most dense, and then gas, which is the least dense um, out of all of them, leaving aside if it's compressed or, or liquefied. Um, to kind of get at why that is, could you talk about something you've explained to me before, which is the issue with hydrogen gas as an energy source? Because you might think, well, like pure hydrogen in a certain sense, isn't that isn't that uh, the best fuel? Sure, absolutely. Um, that's I think that's actually um, really helpful. Um, so, you know, people, I, I don't know how in vogue it is now to talk about um, hydrogen gas as a fuel, but um, so when you're talking molecule for molecule, you're absolutely right. Um, hydrogen gas is just two hydrogen atoms bonded together. So as you might imagine, that those bonds are very energy dense. Um, the problem comes. Wait, wait. In why, that, why um, would why would you imagine that? Just well, just because what we were talking about earlier, how um, hydrogen bonds and carbon bonds are very energy rich. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Keep going. Okay. Yeah. So. Um, so you're not wrong to think that um, a, a molecule of hydrogen gas is very energy rich. The problem comes in um, energy density, right? And it's not enough just to have a lot of energy. You have to be able to pack all those energy rich molecules into a small space, particularly if um, it's a portable fuel that you're trying to power your car with, for example. Um, and that's really where hydrogen falls down um, because it's, it's the, the smallest gas, and, and in some ways the most energetic gas. It's really hard to sort of compress it, um, and it's it's you know you have to cool it. But usually, when you want to cool something, you need to use something that's smaller. So there is nothing so smaller when it comes to hydrogen. It's a hot damn mess. Um, so, in one one point, I remember you also made was just that. Um, so it, there's this very weird category of, oh, we should get energy from hydrogen as if you're not getting energy from hydrogen when you use oil or natural gas. And yet that that's those are actually the best ways of getting energy from hydrogen, right? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, this is this is something that's that life has evolved over over billions of years. these ways to capture, energy in these really energy-rich, dense molecules. Um, 
so um, it's it's telling that there's there's very few sources of biological hydrogen, um, and it goes back to this, you know, I mean, in a sense, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, we we do oxidize hydrogen um, to get energy, except that we store hydrogen in a really smart way. We store it in the form of either um, carbohydrates or um, hydrocarbons or, or fats, really. So, yeah, we're, we're sort of pulling that, that gas um, and compressing it in a, a liquid or a solid form, which, you know, is much more energy dense and much more useful to us. So let's let's definitely dive into what what you just said because it might have gone by too quickly for some people. You're saying there's a parallel between fats and these fuels, right? Oil, coal, and natural gas, which I don't think most people think of. And I, I learned from working with you on an article on the subject. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I mean, I, I think most people know that when when we say fossil fuels, you know, the, the fossil part is, is relevant. It, it refers to the fact that um, living material has been compressed over millions of years um, and that living material used to be, you know, what, what we are now essentially, carbohydrates and hydrocarbons. Um, as an example, um, you know, we, I know fats have been sort of maligned in the last few years, but we well, fat, fats, are, fats are back, actually. Carbohydrates, they've, <laughs> they've fallen from grace. Uh, well, I, I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said biochemically there, but you, you, need, you need them both. Um, for example, if you think of each one of your cells, and you have trillions of them, um, as like a balloon with a bunch of water and stuff inside them, um, the, the, there's like this layer, this double layer of fat, that's, that actually forms the sort of rubbery material of the, the balloon that is your, your cell membrane. Um, so you need fats. And it, it should probably be no surprise that, you know, if you take all those energy-rich hydrocarbons, literally molecules that just have um, carbon and hydrogen in them, um, and compress them for millions of years with lots of pressure and high temperatures, you're going to get even more energy-rich molecules and at this point, it should be no surprise that those molecules are are petroleum, you know, like oil and um, gasoline and so forth. So we'll get, we'll get into to more of that, but just it's it's so there's this really interesting parallel. So we've we've talked about hydrogen, so we're going to talk about all the different fad types of energy uh, that are always going in and out. But what with with um, I mean the relationship between say oil. And ethanol is similar to the relationship between fat and carbohydrate, right? Where you see the number of calories per gram is nine for fat and four for carbohydrate. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So, um, again, it, it's, it's nice to have a, a little visual of what a carbohydrate might look like, but literally it means carbon with water, hydrate, right? Um, so all carbohydrates have carbon and water is part of their molecular structure. Um, you know, water, as everyone knows, has is um, H2O, right? So there's hydrogen and oxygen there. And if you've got these um, carbohydrate molecules, you can expect a fair amount of oxygen there, which means it's partially oxidized and therefore not as energy dense. Um, we need carbohydrates for a lot of reasons, but it's a little bit easier biochemically to it's it's more quick energy usually as opposed to fats which are you know again we're talking about nine calories per gram of fat versus four calories per gram of um carbohydrates there's more energy in fat but it's a little bit harder to get to if you like um but you know to to speak to the point of ethanol um oh my god there's a fire one second you have to explain the chemistry of that. I'm so sorry. Um, so to speak to the point of ethanol, that was not me. Um, ethanol is two carbons and a bunch of hydrogens and some more oxygen. And um, so, again, the, the ratio of oxygen to carbon and hydrogen is relatively high, and so there's not as much of an energy density in ethanol as something 
um, that's like a like a hydrocarbon. Does that make sense? Yeah, and so this this comes up just just in terms of connecting it to practical things. That if you fill up your car, you know, gas tank with ethanol, and you fill up a gas tank with gasoline, I think the the energy density is about two thirds um, one of the other. Now, what about what is the chemical composition of of methanol? There was a big story in the Wall Street Journal a couple weeks ago about methanol making a comeback. Um, so methanol is just. Um, one carbon, three hydrogens, um, and oxygen, another hydrogen. So there the, the ratio of oxygen to carbon and hydrogen is even higher. Um, so molecule to molecule, there's more oxidation and less energy. Now, that's not the whole story, right? I mean, again, we have to talk about um, energy density. So how much can you compress these, you know, not-so-energy-dense molecules? You, you may, in fact, get ahead. Um, so I, I can't remember what the density of ethanol is. It's pretty close to um, ethanol, but yeah, it's, um, ha- it's half. You're, of you're running into the same problem, you know. And indeed, you you, you know, if if it's methane, if natural gas were a little bit easier to compress, that would definitely be the way to go. Uh, yeah. I mean, if 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 you just compress, I mean, if it's still in gas form, though, it's they they still have those ridiculous sized trunks. Uh, full of them. The whole Orange County cab fleet has now converted to it. And they're, they're like borderline go-karts because they need to be pretty light because you're dealing with pretty low energy density. And one of the yeah. one time I got driven home and the guy's complaining about how he used to have a, uh, you know, Crown Victoria and he filled that, he could fill that up at the same interval that he filled his current car, but that he could drive oh, no. around in, in comfort, you know, in this in this very comfortable car instead of this this moving, like, sort of half Jeep, half go-kart that he was driving <laughs> all the name of the planet. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, there, there are some pretty macro consequences to using even, you know, slightly less than optimal molecules. I like that. I like that sentence. Macro consequences <laughs> using slightly less than optimal. But it's, it's true. I mean, there are macro consequences to doing anything even a tiny bit less optimally. Eric Eric Dennis always will just point out that you know a a one percent increase in growth rate over fifty years means a completely different country, and oh, foregoing yeah. that means foregoing a completely different country. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's for one thing, it's it's strange to me that you know anyone would regard. Um, fuels of any kind is unnatural. I mean, we're talking about compressed plants that we're putting into our cars. This doesn't get a lot more natural than that. Um, but, you know, there's there's a lot of parallels to be made between, you know, we're, we're very concerned about the kinds of fuels we put in our bodies. You know, we, we were just talking about, you know, how fats are in vogue now, but carbohydrates are out for whatever reason. Um, you know, I, I think... <laughs> You know the fuels we we put, you know, we use to power our lives should should at least at least deserve as much attention and and careful consideration. Yeah, and 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 appreciation for the ones that people all over the world choose. I mean, they have they have good reasons for choosing them, and to and if we're going to use different ones, it should be because they're surpassed, not because they're deemed politically incorrect. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's let's talk about we we mentioned a little bit earlier about um, just how the chemical reaction occurs how you have all of this how these are very the carbon hydrogen bonds in fossil fuels are extremely strong and how when oxygen is introduced they release a bunch of energy um, but let's talk about the how that how that works out in practice as in um, how an internal combustion engine works and takes advantage of this released energy. Um. Sure. <laughs> I don't know how technical you, you want to get, but, um, you know, if we're talking about one that uses um, gasoline, for example, so you you fill your tank up, right, and it's this, this liquid. Um, so these, so what happens is, is that it gets injected into the cylinders um, as sort of a, a vaporized mixture with a bunch of oxygen. Um, that alone is not enough to cause ignition usually because gasoline is so stable at, at room temperature. 
Um, so that's where your spark plug comes in. It, uh, it causes a little ignition. Um, so what happens then is that, um, you know, the oxygen trades places with the hydrogen and the carbon in these, in these molecules and gasoline. Um, so they sort of break up into water and CO2. Um, so you're getting a lot of heat, which is sort of perpetuating this, um, this explosion, this controlled explosion, um, but you're also getting a lot more molecules, right? But the oxygen's kind of free because it's everywhere, um, but, you know, you've converted this one huge hydrocarbon molecule into a bunch of little um, water and carbon dioxide molecules, and that, for anyone who, um, you know, loves the, the laws of thermodynamics, um, the law of physics, you know, this is the Newton's second law um, of entropy, right? Um, things go from a state of order to disorder. You've got one big complicated molecule, now you've got a bunch of little molecules, and the universe is happy. So that's where you're getting some of that energy in addition to the, all the heat that's being released. Okay, now in terms of, of pra like, what is what is that heat doing? And because what we ultimately have is we've got this we've got we have this fuel, and then we're using it to generate heat, and then that heat is becoming mechanical energy and ultimately motion. So how does that next part of it work? Oh yeah, sure. Um, so, um, so right, you have this this heat which is expanding this gas and all of these new molecules. Okay, but that's that's and, really important, um, right? That that it's expanding. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, Alex. Um, so it so the gas expands, which causes the piston to move up the cylinder, which causes um, you know the flywheel to move and ultimately um, the wheels to turn. So sorry to complete the story. That's that's what happens. Yeah, that's so. Is this at least in my understanding? This is you know most people from don't remember much from chemistry class, but most of us remember the the um, equation PV equals NRT in terms of, um, you know, the relationship between temperature and pressure. Isn't that one of the main things that's at work here? Yeah, yeah. So um, if, you, if you change the, the pressure, right, you know, the P, um, you've, you've got to, and you're adding more, um, yeah, so if you're, if you're increasing the pressure, right, one of two things has to happen. Um, Either the temperature goes up, or um, there's—I mean, you, you have to expand to sort of release the pressure. I mean, something's got to give. Um, it's sort of the long and the short of it. So, you know, you have this expanding gas. The temperature is going up because it's combusting. Um, so, to relieve the pressure, the, the whole volume changes to lift up um, the piston in the cylinder. Mm -hmm. does, does that answer your question? Yeah, so just to elaborate a little bit, just it's, I mean, this is one of the coolest things that ever happened in history in terms of being able to take the capacity to generate heat and turn it into the capacity to generate motion, because we've been able to generate heat a lot longer than we've been able to generate motion in terms of, of machines using heat. I mean, like, I, I guess I'm not sure what you're asking for. Well, I'm, I'm just, I guess just, I just want to highlight for people that, I mean, this is, I mean, this is essentially what, what the steam engine solved, but just in terms of taking, because imagine we just had this fuel, um, imagine people figured out how to drill for oil and how to refine it into, you know, a, a fuel that burns, but we didn't have this kind of engine. It's just that there's two components to the achievement. One is figuring out, like, getting the fuel, and the other is converting the fuel into into motion. Yeah, so, I mean, you know, the, the steam engine is a good sort of counterexample. There you were just heating up water, and um, which takes a lot of energy. And once it goes from liquid to gas, it's expanding its volume hugely, um, which is why you can, you know, you can have things turning and going. Um, you know, when we move to an even more... It, but the water wasn't being combusted, it was just being expanded. Hmm. So there's, there's an added bonus there when you actually combust an energy-rich fuel, and that's, you know, you, you, get, you get heat as a byproduct rather than having to, to input it, um, which is sort of perpetuates the reaction, which is nice. Um, and you get all this, these new molecules being formed, 
which increases your entropy, which is also really nice. It's, it's a you know it's a far superior way to have an internal combustion engine. You mentioned the stability of gasoline at, at room temperature, which I just want to highlight for people because that's that's one of the very nice things about it. Um, early in the oil industry, there was this substance that gave people a ton of problems, which was natural gas or methane, because it would just come, it would just explode all the time, and people people would die. What, what is the difference between the two, where uh, natural gas can be much more of a threat? Well, I mean, a lot of it's simply the fact that it's a gas, and it's hard to contain a gas. Um, so there tends to be leakage, and you know those, you know, it's in a sense it's nice that those molecules are so energy rich. Um, on the other hand, you know, should should they spontaneously combust, they're <laughs> in real trouble. Um, so you know, to to answer your question, a lot of it has to do with the, the nature of the fact that it's a gas. Um, the other, there's there's certainly more to it, and we're quickly reaching the depths of my knowledge of organic chemistry. But um, when molecules are are bigger, they tend to be, they tend to go from from gas to liquid, and then from liquid to solid. So um, when a when a molecule is bigger, you usually have to all other things being equal, you usually have to put in a lot more energy to get that initial combustion. Now, once it starts, if it's generating heat, um, it'll metastasize. It'll it'll perpetuate itself. Um, but getting over that initial hurdle takes more. Got it. Uh, I want to go back to, to batteries, which I know you know a lot about. So we talked mentioned the, the continuum of, of energy density, so different things having more energy per, per unit of mass and volume. Um, where do you know? And, and if you look at those charts, you see that batteries uh, fit into a spot that's surprisingly low, given how much hype there is about batteries. Why are batteries so much less energy dense than even wood? Um, well, a lot of it has to do with the fact that, um, so in a sense, batteries work a lot like any sort of chemical combustion. You know, when you're moving electrons from a high-energy um, or high-voltage potential chemical to a lower one, um, that's, where you, that's where you're capitalizing on the energy. The thing with, part of the thing with batteries is that um, you have to carry your oxidant with you. So whereas when we combust, we've got all this oxygen kind of all over the place, um, so we don't need to bring tanks of O2 with us in order to have a combustion reaction. Um, but, you know, when you're moving electrons from one half of the battery to the other, that other is a sort of a, I don't want to say a dead weight, but, you know, if, if, if you could just have that other half with you all the time, it would definitely help. Um, you know, as to... So, I'm not as familiar with, with chemical batteries like lithium ion and why exactly they're they're so poor in terms of energy density. It is remarkable that there it, it's so much lower. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it is. It is, and, and it's I, it's the kind of thing where I wish that in the in the discussion in the technical discussion that people talked more about the re, that either that's that that's a fact and why. It's a fact because the way it's held, I think, with most people is, well, you know, of course, they'll just be able to get them as dense as they want. And it's not to be anti-technology in any way, but it's just to realize that there's a there's, there's an it's in the nature of the way that it works now to not be able to be super dense. So you would need to change something fundamental. It's not it's not exactly the same as a Moore's law type situation where you can make microprocessors faster and faster in a fairly uh, predictable way. And it's interesting how often Moore's law is invoked uh, for technological contexts in which it has no application whatsoever. Yeah, battery technology is very, very different from um, computer processing technology, and, and they don't follow the same trend by any means. It, you know. Anyone in this field will tell you where we're really sort of falling behind in terms of electronics is the battery capacity. And it's not for lack of smart, dedicated researchers. It's a pretty unique problem. 
Yeah, is there any, is there any way to take advantage of just the the density of hydrocarbons and and you know there are other ways of converting them to electricity because right now you know we're we use them to generate heat which then becomes electricity but you lose a lot of the energy in the process. Sure. Um. Yeah, and that's true. Um. So there are hydrogen batteries. Um. Which you know, instead of combusting the hydrogen with oxygen, they, they do something, you know, they, they do what all batteries do, right? They split up those bonds, strip off the electrons, and eventually let them rejoin. Um, you still run into a lot of problems with the compression of hydrogen that I don't know that you'll ever be able to get around, um, barring some amazing technical advancement. Um, as to other carbohydrates, um, I know they've done stuff like that before, but it, I mean, why you use carbohydrates when, yeah, I mean, it's still not as energy dense and never will be compared to hydrocarbons. So I don't, I don't see that ever, you know, in, in terms of chemistry, it, it doesn't seem advantageous, really. Um, a term that, that comes up and another, another relevant technology that, that comes up as a, as a cure-all, and I see it a lot in these these schemes that these professors get paid to concoct about how they can, how they're going to change the whole energy infrastructure of the world, and they, you know, have it on a napkin. Uh, fuel cells. What what are fuel cells? Um, so they're a kind of battery. Um, and and um, so for a, I mean. To me, they, they don't really seem all that much different from any other kind of battery. Um, why they have a different name, I'm honestly not sure. Um, but so you, you can put any kind of fuel you want as long in in you know the anode side of it, as long as you have some way um, to catalyze the the switching of the bond, if you will. Um, but yeah, they 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 still have that same problem of of energy density that any other battery has. Mm -hmm. You know, there are advantages just, so I've seen, as you mentioned, there are different kinds of fuels. I mean, I, I remember t at an oil show or some oil and gas show talking to some people who were dealing with natural gas fuel cells and they made some argument for why these are better in remote uh, locations. I mean, they, they're not, are, are there advantages like that? Because they're not, you know, you're not burning the gas or at least not in the usual sense. Well, so I guess the advantage would be that you're um, so you know we talked about how when you're when you're combusting a fuel, what you're really capitalizing on is the heat and the expansion of a gas that results from that heat that is then converted into um, mechanical energy. Um, with batteries and fuel cells, you're going directly from chemical to electrical energy. Um, in in that sense, it, it tends to, if what you what you want is electricity, um, say to power um, a phone or a computer, that's um, more efficient than going from chemical to mechanical to electrical because you're always going to have even with the most efficient system, you're always going to have some loss converting from one kind of energy to another. Um, but that's I mean in my mind that's not as important as as, you know, the overall power you can get from something, um, in which case, you know, fossil fuels are, I mean, they, they still beat out everything but nuclear hands down. Mm -hmm. Now, we've talked a couple of times about how in the, the basic uh, reaction involved here in terms of, of combusting this stuff, that it releases H2O and, of course, the alleged devil gas, uh, CO2. <laughs> so what's... I mean, of, and of course, there are many strong opinions that this is the end of uh, humanity if, you know, we don't stop doing it. What's What's been the evolution of your thinking on the issue? I'm just curious. I've never asked you this, but on the like from the time you encountered it to the present. Um, gosh, um, <laughs> there's there's a lot of history there. And, you know, a lot of it is, is just being presented with more technical data. So, for example, um, it was helpful for me to know that um, many gases are more soluble a colder liquid is. And, and a real-life example of that is if you open up a soda can, which has CO2 in it, 
if you leave it out on the counter, um, it'll go flat pretty quickly. But if you put it in the fridge, it'll stay nice and fizzy because this, there's, you know, that liquid when it's colder can hold more CO2. Um, so, you know, when, when Kate is presented that shows a correlation between CO2 and temperature, there's, there's two, I mean, I don't think there's much of one, but there's two possible explanations there. One is that CO2 is driving temperature, and two is that temperature is driving CO2. And since we have a lot of water on this planet, it, it follows that it's the latter, that it's, that it's temperature, you know, that when it gets warmer, um, as it is on Earth and as it is on Mars, um, kind of the same way, um, you know, the, the oceans get warmer on Earth um, and release CO2 because CO2 is less soluble in warmer liquids. Um, as an example, <laughs> I could go on and on, but, you know, I, you know I, I used to believe what my professors told me, that global warming was caused by people and it was catastrophic, and I've learned a lot since that, you know, puts me at a complete 180. Well, so with that point, so let's play devil's advocate. So someone would say, well, what if it's, maybe it's both, right? Maybe our CO2 in the atmosphere is heating, you know, heating things up, and then that causes the oceans to warm, and there's more CO2, and it's just this vicious cycle, and we're just going to burn up. <laughs> I've, I've heard that, um, and um, that, you know, for you, you've said on previous power hours that, you know, it's it's not, it's not a linear or even um, a, a, a logarithmic, you know, catastrophic thing. And, and that tends to be true with whenever you have a biological system. I mean, we've got a bunch of organisms that are very self-correcting and very good at adapting to a change. Um, so that seems unlikely. Um, when, you, when you bring that in with the fact that, you know, Mars's global temperature is changing the same way Earth is, the most parsimonious explanation is probably not that we're not driving enough hybrids on Earth. So then, just having been in academia for a while, what I always ask people this, but what, what's your sense of how this mass hysteria is possible? I mean, surely most people know about the soda can in the fridge versus the counter. Um, I, I really couldn't. Say. I honestly don't know where it comes from. I mean, I've worked with such really smart, knowledgeable people, and yet when you when you bring up something like that, even casual, they they have this really they well they tend to have a, a pretty negative reaction, a, a pretty visceral reaction, and I honestly couldn't tell you why that is. Uh, so naive. So so. so. <laughs> So innocent. <laughs> well, I, I don't presume to read their minds, certainly. No, it's, we had, uh, I'm just reminded of that because we had, uh, well, on, on we're, we're recording this on a Friday, and, and it's the same Friday that the Power Hour with Ross McKittrick has been released. And if you haven't heard that, for sure, go go and listen to that after you finish this one. Uh, and Ross McKittrick is one of the, the two main people who debunked the hockey stick. And he's just the nice, he's been treated so badly by the most irrational people. And he's so smart. And yet he's so gracious and sweet about like how he describes people. And, um, and I'm, uh, that doesn't describe my personality. No, I, did, I did not debunk the hockey stick, nor am I sweet in regard to the uh, perpetrators. Uh, of, of the hockey stick, and I guess I'm I'm just given my background in philosophy and also really interested in psychology. I'm very interested in the, the motives of of this kind of thing, and then the the institutional incentives for and, and psychological incentives for people to want this this status as you know we're scientists and scientists believe this about this political issue, and it's it's. It's sort of whenever you meet someone who doesn't buy into it and makes it's total common sense, but then it's it's almost crazy unless you really understand it how it is that not everyone thinks it. like you talk about it in a very calm and relaxed way, as do the others that we have on, and then we talk to other people and it's just the most tense and angry uh, uh, and sort of authoritarian discussion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, normally, um, you know, all of my colleagues are, are so wonderful about 
you know, if it doesn't make sense to you, you, you don't want to anybody to believe it, you know? It, I mean, keep, keep at it. Keep trying to make it make sense. And if it's just wrong, it probably, it probably isn't real. Um, but there, there are a few kind of gaps sometimes where it's just, you know, hey, I worked really hard on getting my PhD, so just, just believe what I say. And that, that doesn't, that's not a credit to anybody. All right, good stuff. Well, we're uh, we are getting short on time. So, uh, what what final thoughts do you want to share with the audience on uh, fossil fuels, science, whatever you want? Oh yeah, well, um, actually, right now I'm um, so your your audience probably knows a lot about um, polymers and plastics, which have oh, we didn't talk to, about um, that. <laughs> well, it, yeah, we'll, actually, let's we'll, we'll talk about that for a second. I mean, it's my yeah. show. I can make it as long as I want. <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, so, um, so, so plastics, um, the, the short version is that you take short, usually, um, little hydrocarbons or, or sometimes carbohydrates and you chain that you link them together in these long chains. Um, you know, poly means many polymers, right? Um, and um, there's lots more to be said about plastics, but um, the reason I'm so excited is because I've been learning about bacteria that in addition to making fat molecules, you know, other hydrocarbons and carbohydrates to store their energy will actually make plastic to store their energy. And there are some companies out there that are, um, that are capitalizing on this to, to make more plastics for us. Wow. And, and, for us, more plastics is is good news. Yeah, 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 and for yeah, you know, like the three D printer makers of the world. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, their plastic is outlawed in certain forms in certain uh, cities. Like when I was in Berkeley recently, and no plastic bags allowed. Yeah, that to me is absolutely horrific because. You know, we in labs you use plastic all of the time. It's very, very good at separating things you want from things you don't, and it it follows that that's true. I mean, perceptually, that's true in our daily lives too. And and it just it makes everything so much cleaner and more sanitary. And and to outlaw sanitation just is incredibly bizarre to me. Yeah, they should really be called anti-sanitation laws. Yeah. <laughs> Um, oh, that's such a little gross. <laughs> All right. Any any final thoughts before we wrap up? Um, no, that's, that's pretty much everything for an hour. All right. Sounds good. Well, Megan, thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Alex. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.